0: Uh, a Bible uh, on analog or digital, please uh, please do open up with us in Isaiah chapter 49. It's not going to be long before we finished Isaiah, all 66 chapters. I think we took longer in Matthew, which only has 28, but uh, here we go. So Isaiah 49, verses 1 and Let's go to seven. Sorry, I gave you to six, but let's go to seven. I'll give Chris a moment. Okay, so listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hit me, and he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now, the Lord says... He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has been my strength. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? To restore the tribes of Jacob and bring them back, bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up, princes will see you and bow down, because, the Lord, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is one of those passages that uh, causes us to to look beyond the horizon, to look beyond the walls, to look beyond that which we sometimes have got a perception of, a conception of. I don't know if you um, uh, have have come across, read the book, or seen the film Room. It's a bit of a harrowing book, actually. Uh, it's it's um, it, it's it's not a nice kind of scenario, but. Uh, I'll leave you to imagine. we can talk about it later, what it's about. But it, the premise of, of the story is about uh, a mother and her child who are living in a room, and that's all they know. And uh, it's kind of quite a descriptive. It's been made into a film. And there's a, there's a scene where there's a skylight, and the, the child's perception of anything out there is just through the skylight. And that's the horizon of their world. That's all he's known living in the room. This story is the second of the servant songs in, uh, in Isaiah. We, we had uh, one back in, in the earlier part of, of Isaiah in chapter 42. I'll come back to that in a moment. But when Isaiah brings this word and as we read it, I know sometimes we hear it and kind of it, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. But really, what the, the prophet is speaking is something that is profound and majestic and breaks open the walls of conception, breaks, breaks open the imagination, and sees beyond the horizon of that, even which the most courageous of Israelites would imagine. But before I, I kind of get onto that, I want to tell you a story. How about that? Are you sitting comfortably? I remember that radio program. If that rings a bell, uh, it's called "The Bluebird and the Frogs." I used this a, a not long time ago at Christmas, but probably no one remember it. The Bluebird and the Frogs. In a place a long way from here, there was a deep hole in the ground. It was abandoned, and had been dug many years before, and nobody seemed to know what this big hole was for. But inside the hole, there's a large group of frogs. The first ones to go there had entered thinking this is a really good froggy place to be. An ideal place to live, well protected, damp, just the thing for frogs. You can imagine it. So when they discovered it, with one big jump, they dived into the hole. And diving in was the the easy part. Getting out proved impossible. It was a much deeper hole than they had imagined. In fact, it was so deep, the frogs never got out again. So they had to live there, down in the hole, way, way down. I don't know if you know much about frogs, but they got married together and they had baby frogs, children, and the children multiplied and they formed a lovely frog society. Some of the older ones, though, remembered the beauty of the outside world. And at times they got really homesick thinking about the place from which they had come. They used to tell stories to their children and great-grandchildren, froggies. When I was young, before I fell into this hole, that's always how they began. And the children listened well enough, but rolled their eyes sometimes, thinking, oh, that old story again. Because they'd never been outside, and they assured themselves that they were just the stories that the old frogs told. Made up. Because they were feeling their age and not quite in possession of all their faculties. You know what old frogs are like. And the time came eventually when the old frogs, those who'd known of that time, died. And with the passing of time, the stories were forgotten. And new generations of frogs were born... And society adapted and developed, and and they started frog schools because, you know, they needed to educate their frogs about living in the hole, and they got special certificates to pass. And they ended up convinced with all this great society and the frog thinkers, thinking that their big hole really was the only place that existed in the whole of the universe. This was it. Of course, they'd they'd, uh, hopped right to the edges, And hopped as high as they could and and delved as deep as they could. And after much rigorous scientific analysis, they discovered and proclaimed what was real was the real, round, deep hole. Where water and solid earth combined. And that was what existed. And they would sing a little song. Little frog, you will never see a hole better than this one. Love with pride, the hole where we're all born. I hope you're liking the story. Now, inside the hole, life went on as it does in most every place. There were strong, bossy frogs who ordered all the ones about, and the the most delicious insects would go to the most bossy frogs. The weaker frogs used to mumble about this being terribly unjust, and it's just not fair. And so, for that very reason, they started to mutter among themselves and began to prepare for a revolution that would change things when the dominant class would be overthrown and life in the bottom of the hole would be democratic and insects would be distributed with justice. If the hole was not as good as the song above, it was because it was dominated by those stronger, selfish frogs. But one day, a bluebird, beautiful bird, saw the hole and decided, I wonder what's down there. So the bluebird swooped down and, and flew down into the depths, down, 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 and was overwhelmed and surprised to see it was full of frogs. But that was nothing with the amazement the frogs had of seeing the bluebird. Whoa, what is that? What a strange and beautiful creature. Its very presence seems to bring serious doubts about all their theories about the world because there was certainly no record in their registers and and books and scrolls of any such creature. The poor blue bird, as it swooped and dived and sat and looked, was stricken with pity for their frogs because he realized that they were prisoners in that fetid, dark, dank hole without any apparent knowledge of The beautiful world outside. How was it that they could live there without ever thinking of leaving? But the frogs knew perfectly well that the world outside didn't exist. This was their reality. That was their universe. And so the bluebird decided to tell them about the world outside and and began to sing for all his worth. He wanted to help these poor frogs and he sang of flowers and and green fields and streams of crystal clear water and of lakes and and of all sorts of insects they could feast upon. And frogs of other breeds even and all sorts of animals and the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds and on and on his beautiful song. And the frogs, wow, they were really interested. And excited, but soon they began to disagree among themselves. Some believed that the blue, some believed in the bluebird, and began to think about that new life out there. Wow, what would it be like? They began to sing new songs and were altogether happier. They began to make plans and think of how they could leave the hole. No longer so involved with all the old political intrigues. We don't want democracy democratization of the hole in which we live, what we want to do is leave and live in this whole new world. We'd rather be humble folk outside the hole where everything is more beautiful than be dominated by the elite here inside where everything is so dark and smelly. But the other frogs frowned, croaked deeply. They would not believe. It was all in vain. This animal, this bird, this blue thing, they said, is a trickster. We know that these things don't exist. We learned it at school. So King Frog called his generals, shared his thoughts, and they worked out that Bluebird's ideas were very dangerous. Politically, socially, economically Dangerous. You know, those other frogs were losing interest in their work. They weren't doing as much hard labor. They, were, they weren't kind of caring as much as they were. They had dreams and ideas above their station. They worked less and croaked more. And it was clear that the words of the bluebird were just a clever part of the intrigues of the opposition, a ploy, a dangerous ploy, because the singing weakened society. So the intellectual frogs made careful thinking and plans and their report came back that they had to do something about the bird. So the next time the bluebird appeared, they captured the bird, killed it, stuffed it, and put it in the Central Frog Museum. And the rest of the frogs were expressly prohibited from singing songs that the bluebird had sung to them. But one day, a very young frog visited the museum and asked the teacher, teacher, what's that? It's a bluebird, said the teacher. "'And what are those strange things on its back?' he asked. "'They're wings. "'And what are wings for?' "'They're for flying.' "'Do we fly?' "'No,' said the teacher. "'We don't fly, we jump.' "'But wouldn't it be better to fly?' "'And the teacher understood him with a discreet smile,' That even though the bluebird was stuffed, it'd never be forgotten. Chapter 49 of Isaiah paints a picture of a world beyond the whole, a bigger vision than you'd imagine than Judah could imagine, than the people in exile and the repression of, uh, of the Babylonians. And, and we heard last time we were, in, we were preaching through Isaiah that, that they, they'd heard that they could begin to move back to Jerusalem, but only a few went, and, uh, and they were thinking, where is God, and what's happened, and, and where were all the promises they'd been dashed? But in the prophetic, prophetic announcements, these words of the servant songs, verses one to four. Here is my servant, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, islands will put their hope servant songs this is part 2 we read it just a little bit earlier but the question is who's isaiah talking about you see it seems a little bit ambiguous i mean in verse 3 it could be cyrus he said you are my servant remember we talked about earlier on in in, in chapter uh, in in um, Uh, In the prophetic words, it talked about Cyrus being the anointed one, the one that God would raise up, the one that uh, in in verse 45, the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, is that whom Isaiah is speaking in this servant song? Or, Or perhaps in verse four, but I said I've labored in vain. Is it about Isaiah? Is that who this song is about? It seems a bit of a mystery. I mean, we we look at it with the benefit of hindsight. We know the end of the story. It's about the promised Messiah. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 talks about, uh, about the law and the Old Testament being the shadow of the things to come. It's real, it's, tangi- it's sort of there, we app- apprehend it, we conceive it, but it's just a shadow of what God is going to do. And here we have kind of like a projection, there's an image being formed, the shadow of what God will do. But it's partial, it's not complete. In the first servant song in chapter 42, it's about the servant, about how this uh, servant will be a king and a general and bring justice to the whole world. In the second song here in verse, chapter 49... This song is sung by the servant himself, and it speaks prophetically. It speaks of how this one that God will raise up will be rejected, but ultimately vindicated. You see, Isaiah is a little bit of a conundrum. For Isaiah, as he speaks, and as the, uh, his hearers, and, in, and even indeed through the whole of the rest of the Old Testament history, We're left with this slightly peculiar picture. It's like trying to get the lay of the land without a map. It's like trying to chart these watercourses of tributaries of insight and and prophetic utterance and uh, and what God is doing. And we just can't see how it fits together. I was talking to someone who's writing an essay on on the messianic hope of the Old Testament. And uh, they were saying, well, what do you say? And I said, well, it's, it's like this puzzle, it's like a jigsaw puzzle that they've got. They've got all the pieces, and there's no picture to work out how it fits together. But you kind of know that all the pieces are there. But just how does it arrange? Well, Paul gives us a clue in Acts chapter thirteen, verse forty-seven. He he quotes from Isaiah forty-nine. Let me read it to you. Isaiah, uh, sorry, Acts chapter thirteen. Verses 47, a direct quote about Jesus. I'll I'll read the verse before. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. That's the Jews in the synagogue. We had to speak to you the word of God first. Since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That for Paul in that revelation of the risen Jesus, as he got to know his Saviour and Lord, he saw that this servant song, the second servant song of Isaiah, was speaking so wonderfully about Jesus. He is the one that this scripture is speaking about. Indeed, when when we know the end of the story, it kind of seems obvious that Jesus was called long before his birth by the Father. First Peter chapter one verse twenty that he was given the name that is in his in verse one. It talks about before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my mother's womb He's spoken my name. Wasn't that the case for Mary and Joseph that we read at Christmas tide that he was given the name Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel? Indeed, the story goes on that, that, uh, in, uh, that he was hidden away, not only in Egypt, but when they came back to Nazareth, Jesus, for 30 or so years, was hidden, concealed. He grew in wisdom and stature until the time was right, just like the prophet speaks. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. From time to time, uh, we, we get questions, Phil and I, have uh, people saying, well, what about the Jewish nation now? What about, where, is, where does, where does the, the nation of Israel fit in the plans and purposes of God and If you've been around Christian uh, thinking at any length of time, you'll know that there's such a range of opinions. For me, my belief on this, my understanding of this, is that Jesus not only is the Messiah, but he comes to fulfill and is true Israel. That when we look at Jesus, he is the representation, the embodiment of all of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. But he's also the one true Israelite who has ever lived, that fulfills all the old covenant and all the old law, that in him is embodied the fullness of all that God's people were meant to be. That in Jesus, in that narrowing of Old Testament history into Jesus Christ, we see... All the plans and the perfection of what God intended for his people all along. But it failed and failed and failed again. But in Jesus, there is perfection and fullness. That Jesus is true Israel. And from him, he calls not only the Jewish people, but again and again, the glimpses in the Gospels. That the Gospel goes wider. That their view and their walls are brought down because it's about the Samaritans and those further afield, like the Syrophoenician woman and the Jairus' daughter. And, and again and again, these glimpses as Jesus interacts to say, the kingdom of God has come and he's for all people. It's a bit like an, an hourglass shape, that, that here is the Old Testament, and it fo- the lens focuses in on Jesus. And then from Jesus and the, uh, and the establishment of the twelve, I mean, obviously there's an symbolic reference there that, that outspreads again. The fulfillment of God's promises from Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, from Jesus, the fullness of God, from Jesus. I mean, if you think about the story in Matthew's gospel, it seems to make sense. Chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that this Jesus, this gospel, this one that we're about to hear the story of is the true son of David, the true descendant of Abraham. Chapter 2 Verse fifteen in in the birth story is not that that Jesus had to flee, he's like the the fig, the, the um, like fugitive Israel. He's he's got a mini exodus. He's cast out into Egypt. In chapters three and thirteen to fifteen, he comes back. He's baptized. It's like a figurative crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan. What happens next? The Sermon on the Mount. Well, sorry, before that, his baptism, then his temptation. He's 40 days in the wilderness, paralleling the 40 years of the people of God in the wilderness in Exodus and the early parts. Where they failed, he succeeds. What happens next? Chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. What happened in the wilderness? Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law and comes down with it written on tablets. What happens with Jesus? He goes up the mount and is with them and says, here is the fulfillment of the law. This is what it looks like now. But in verse four of chapter 49, chapter 49 the truth comes out again that he would be, Rejected by Israel and by the people. Rejected. And yet fruitfulness comes. The vindication of God, even for the suffering servant. In the first song, in chapter 42, we see the glimpse, the formation of part of the picture. In the second song, we begin to see some more of that picture being painted. And it's a radical picture. It's a picture that blows the walls from our wall. It's it's a picture that lifts us up out of the hole and the mire and the short-sighted myopic vision which we create around ourselves in the world. For Paul, as he preaches to the Jews, as he leaves the synagogue, he points to the cross, to the victory of God that is so colossal that it even extends to the very nations, the islands in the farthest reaches across the oceans that have only just heard of in old, old stories. For Paul, he's got it, he's, his room has, the walls have come down, the doorway has been opened, he's, he's left the hole of short-sightedness, and he's able to dream bigger. We're sent further and further and farther and beyond for a God who has come, a saviour who has prevailed through suffering, even death on a cross, and raised, and living, and exalted, and passionate, and purposeful for all peoples. As we come to this table right now, as you come to this symbol and this, this, this demonstration of this picture being made complete, That the wall of your imagination be extended. That he saves you completely. That through his death and resurrection, he puts the very spirit of God within you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. The increase of his government will know no end. He is the Prince of peace, that all peoples, even nations like, and rulers like Donald Trump and King Jong-Un and multinationals and billionaires will bow at the knee of Je- the feet of Jesus, confess him as Lord. All of that power and prestige, all of, of that infamy, infamy, will be as nothing. As you come to this table and recognize the completeness of his salvation, we've sung it already, he is mighty to save. I pray the walls of your conception, the walls of your preconceptions would diminish. But what does God want to do in you? What does God want to do through you? How can the potter take the clay of your life and refashion it? How might the world look as we step out in faith and say, this is the one I know, this is the one I worship. Nothing is impossible for him. Do you know, sometimes... The opponents of Jesus and his people understand this more than we do. It seems they're dead set on, on curtailing and preventing and boxing in and, and saying, who do you think you are? Whether it's extreme persecution or, or saying it's, it's, don't read this. Don't trust this. This is to be got rid of. Don't pray. Don't gather. Just conform. Perhaps, Because there's a glimmer of understanding of just how radical, powerful, globally transforming is the power of God. As we eat bread and drink this cup, just imagine. It's like the bluebird singing. Singing of a different world, a different way. A different expression of a kingdom that will know no end. Join in. Amen.